Okay, guys. Well, well, happy new year. Thanks for being here. This is awesome. All right. And uh, it's been over a month. We, I canceled. How many times did I cancel this class? Twice? Twice. Twice. And uh, thank God we can be here today. God's held the rain off a little bit. I think it's going to keep raining for the next couple of days, but I got here safely. And so thank you for being here. I'm excited. Um, let me pray and then we'll read the text and jump right in. I want to spend as much time as we can in it and uh, have time afterwards. I purposely, moving forward, I've only got, usually I have like 10 plus pages. I purposely have like five, just a little over five. But going over it today, I'm like, man, I hope I can keep this to an hour or less because I want to focus on not spending so much time lecturing. So, and I want it to be more give and take. So let me pray. Lord, thanks so much for this uh, privilege of just getting to walk through this amazing letter full of life-saving truth in Christ. And I uh, thank you for everybody here. And I thank you for the folks that um, come sometimes and aren't here. And I thank you for those that are maybe coming um, that aren't here yet. And so I pray that you keep them safe. Lord, would you just Send us your spirit. I know you're here with us now. Would you fill us? Would you give us understanding? Would you give us a greater love for Jesus and for trying God for what you've done in Christ for us, our full salvation in him? Um, and then as we're looking at today, some walking, walking it out day by day with the power of your spirit as we're made new uh, in Christ by your Holy Spirit. And um, would, you meet, would you meet with us? Would, you, would, you, would we love you more and adore you more and see more of your beauty and the beauty of your salvation and the completeness of your salvation and its ramifications for us today more by the time we leave. Um, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we got the handouts, right? We got the hymn, which hopefully we'll be able to sing at the end. And then um, everybody has the other page of, with the quote on it and the notes. If you want to take notes, you can take them on the back too. Okay. So a couple announcements and then we'll read the scripture one is at, we were on a schedule to sort of finish this early May, but because we had to bump it, because I had to bump it back because of the weather, we're gonna fin- we're on schedule to finish end of May, and of course we just can't go beyond that because that's when summer starts and people, some people have kids, and I just we're gonna finish end of May. So that's pray that for I don't plan on having any more non Mondays except for the week of spring break. So I plan on just doing this. I mean, obviously if there's a tornado or a hurricane or something, but. Hopefully we won't have to do that. Um, second thing is we, oh, I hope Priya comes, but um, I'm thinking about her because she started to memorize. She let us know about this Romans 8 challenge that some folks are doing, and it's a challenge to memorize the whole, the whole chapter. Uh, and as I'll, as I'll say in a bit, you may already know this, but this is, this is widely considered maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible. The whole of the scriptures, all 66 books are God's perfect word, but some are some chapters are more glorious than others, and this is full of glory and beauty and usefulness. Um, every every scripture is useful, but this is um, if you had the choice between this and uh, you know one of the early chapters of Numbers, which is which is a census. That's also God's word. It's also important, but I would I would choose this if I had to choose between two. Um, so uh, I know Jordan has memor- I think Jordan, you've memorized the entire. Sec, the entire claim, text, yeah, claim. yeah. We'll I mean, ma- made the good old college effort. I have not even gotten one verse down, but I think he's got all seventeen memorized. I think Priya does too. So at the end, if we have time, it would be cool to hear y'all's attempt. Um, so all that to say, issuing a challenge, I would love. I'm my goal to myself is like have it memorized by by, by the time we're all the way through the book. <laughs> like I'm gonna, I think it's what thirty nine verses, thirty eight, thirty eight verses. So. Uh, 
that would be wonderful to have this entire glorious chapter, maybe the the most glorious chapter in the entire Bible memorized. Um, yeah. Absolutely. No, that's a great way to memorize it. Okay, King James. Well, it is 39 verses, by the way. I just looked. Um, but you would know that if you'd memorize the entire chapter, which will come soon. You're, you're halfway through. So, um, okay. And so issuing that challenge to myself as much as anyone else, and I'll probably let it, let it out to the whole church. If anybody wants to join us, that'd be great. So, um, and then lastly, if I could get, I've been, every time we've had to cancel stuff and whatever, if there's news, I'll just have to text all the people that aren't on the Slack. So if I can just get your number, if I don't have it, and that way I can just send out one thing on our Romans Slack channel, if that's okay with you. If you don't want to give me your number, that's fine too, but I would love it if you would. Um, can you, here we go. Can y'all write, like, it's pretty much the Montrose folks. Um, can y'all, I have your number. Can y'all just write, and I have your number. I can, I can put it. Okay, okay. That's great. So I really, and I have Kenya's number too. So Kenny, if I can just get your number. Hey, good to see you. And I've got Priya. So I'll put all the, you want her to sit by you. Okay. Wait, she wants, I think Kaylee wants you over there. Oh, okay. I just told everybody that you memorized lots of Romans. So. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. We might put you on the spot later. Theo, you're good. You're good, Theo. I just need Kaylee. I've got everybody else. Okay. Um, Sarah, are you on there? Are you on the? Yes. Okay, I thought so. All right. So that's it as far as announcements. Um, Any translation? Any tra- oh, sure. I, ESV is what I'm teaching from, so I'm going to do ESV. But, it, dude, any, any translation you can memorize, whatever you, is your preference. Um, it's great. King James. Yeah, the ESV is, relies on the King James. It's just updated language. Thank you. Boy, the mind, Perfect. The carnal mind is enmity against God versus the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Things like that. Yeah, is enmity the King James, the, the authorized version. Okay, we are in Romans 8, 1 through 17. So let me go ahead and read it now. Uh, I really do wish every week that somebody else could read it, and somebody else could, but I, I just I want it to be in the recording for those. So, so I'll read it, uh, and, then, and then we'll jump into the lecture. Um, okay, so Romans 8, starting in verse 1, ESV. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is a phrase that we'll spend some time on. Not as much time as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And for sin. Okay, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So now he's starting to talk to us about how to live, not just how we're saved, but how to live in Christ, united to Christ by the power of the Spirit. Right. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, 
You want, to know, you want to know how you can know if you're a Christian, who a Christian is? This is it. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We'll spend time on that. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, so then brothers and sisters, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What a word it is. So this is, as I've said, possibly the richest chapter in the Bible. Uh, Ed Young of Second Baptist, I remember last year, the year before, I'm in there some, I was in there tonight working out with my son, our kids go to school there, and he... um, he preached a, 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 a sermon series recently on Romans 8, and it was called, the series was called The Goat, you know, the, great, the greatest of all time, the greatest chapter of all time. Um, it, this chapter truly belongs in the pantheon of, of chapters in the Bible, along with, I, just coming to mind, Exodus 34, um, Psalm 23 and 63, Isaiah 40, Revelation 5. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, the, the Welsh 20th, mid-20th century Welsh preacher who preached a lot in London, um, he devotes a whopping, this is by my count, 75 messages there, uh, to Romans 8. Just this one chapter, 75. Don't worry, I'm not going to do 75. Uh, I'm not even going to do 75 for the entire, like less than half of that for the entire letter. He devotes 75 messages to this one chapter out of 366 for the total for the book. Um, and, and we were talking earlier about how he doesn't even, I don't know if it's a black hole. He doesn't, there are no, he starts in verse three. So like where are verses, where are eight verses one and two? I don't know. So if you'd include those two, it would have been more. But so 75 total messages he devotes to Romans eight. That's over 20% of his total lectures. So Romans has 16 chapters, but Lloyd-Jones devotes so much space to Romans eight that it's like, Romans has only five chapters since he spends a fifth of his lecture time in this one, this one chapter, Romans 8. Um, that's how important and beautiful this chapter is. Um, the greatest chapter in the greatest work of theology in history. Uh, we're going to get four hours in it, four, four messages, four times together. Um, so we're going to have to leave a lot unsaid. Right? So that's, that's just one big disclaimer. And it's, <laughs> and it's a way of saying this is an awesome, this is an awesome chapter. Um, but there's always Lloyd-Jones. You can listen to all 75 of his on your MLJ Trust app. Um, okay. So, let me... You know what? I typed something up, and it's not in these notes, and I forgot to print it out. Dad, come it. Um, oh, well. Okay. Let me read to you a little bit from Keller. Tim Keller on our transition here from chapter 7 to chapter 8, right? So, a little bit of context. So, Keller says the first seven chapters, this is on page one of his introduction. 
the first seven chapters explain the wonderful truths of the gospel, right? So, so really what Paul's doing in the first, what we've covered so far is he's telling us, here's what God has done in Christ. Here's how we're saved, right? Here's how we're saved. Here's what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, by Christ alone. Justification by faith, we're, made, we're, we're declared right with God through the work of Jesus Christ by trusting in him. Union with Christ, we're united to him truly, um, spiritually and truly uh, through faith. Salvation through Christ alone and not through our works. So those chapters have it all there and have it in great depth, he says. You'll find them unpacked. And, okay, so he's promoting his first volume. This is second volume. Uh, then comes the second half of the book, which we start tonight. And in chapters 8 to 16, Paul's going to continue to answer the question he began to ask in chapters 5 to 7. Here's the question. How does faith in the gospel of Christ actually lead to change in real life? So he's going to move from here's what the gospel is and how glorious it is to, okay, what difference does it make in our lives? How do we walk that out day to day? And in one word, we could call that sanctification. How are we being, we've been declared right with God and how are we actually made more and more like Jesus? It goes from a declaration to we become more and more like him. And by the way, you can never be sanctified. You can, excuse me, you can never be a justified person who's declared right, fully right with God. And that happens the minute you trust in him. Instantly. It's a courtroom declaration. You can never have that happen to you and not be sanctified. That, that, th- th- because those are both fully given to us in Christ, received by faith. Right? Sanctification works itself out over time. Nobody could ever be justified and not receive this, the sanctification package, okay? That did, or, or not receive the glorified, finished package when you see him face-to-face. It's all of a piece. It's all the salvation that's given to us in Christ. Because why? Because we've been united to him. Christ isn't given in measure, right? So, um, let's see here. So, Keller goes on to say, he says, Paul did not merely want his initial audience and us, his, um, the, the Roman church, he's probably writing from Corinth to the east, uh, to just understand the gospel. He longed for them to love and to live the gospel. And then he says this, super important. Christianity is not primarily a matter of the head or of the will. Now, this is a Presbyterian pastor who is extremely cerebral and heady, Tim Keller, right? And he's saying it's not, Christianity is not primarily a matter of the head or the will. It's a matter of the heart. Um, there was a theologian, a 19th century Southern Presbyterian theologian, R.L. Dabney, who said the, um, the affections are the elastic energy that drive, that propel the soul, right? We do, I mean, Augustine said it in a, in a shorter, different way, but, but we, we do, uh, we have to, God wants to grab hold in, in Christ, in the gospel of our affections, because what we have affections for ultimately is what we do. And so, um, that's one of the things Paul's going after here because that is what God wants from us is all, all of our head, all of our affection, all of our heart. So he said it's a matter of the heart, a heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells and which is saturated in the gospel. Not, it doesn't just stay up here. It grabs us, right? It grabs our guts. It grabs our affections. Um, that's the heart that leads to real change in thinking and behavior. Um, and then he goes on just to talk about how basically – from this point forward, from eight all the way to the end of the book, there are basically two kind of big block sections. And the first one is here in 8.1. And he says the word therefore. And what does he go on to say in that verse in 8.1? There's no condemnation for those who Jordan doesn't have to look, right? Therefore, there is no longer, no, therefore there is now, okay? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? And 
Keller says this is a summary of the whole ground of Christian assurance, right? We don't no longer, we're going to talk about that briefly. We no longer have to fear any condemnation forever if we are in Christ Jesus, right? There's no condemnation left for us. Because why? Because why is there no condemnation, no, no condemnation left for those in Christ Jesus? Because God got nice? God remains just. Why is there no, why is there no condemnation for those in Christ? Who got condemned? Christ did. Christ was condemned in, our, in your place if you trust in him. Fully condemned. There's no double jeopardy. We'll get back to we'll get back to this. There's no double jeopardy with God. You can't be, he will not punish the same crime twice. Every, every crime against him, every sin, every evil, if you trust, if you look to Christ, he paid for. Therefore, there's no condemnation left for you. It's all been poured out in Christ. That's what, you know, it will go back to this. This isn't in the notes, and that's fine. Romans 3.25, I believe it is, where Paul says that God hit the Father put forward. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, oh, we got we to, gotta, they're starting to hate on you, Jesus. We got to do something. No, it was like he sent, he, in the fullness of time, he sent his son. Jesus gladly came to rescue us. And he put forward Jesus Christ. He placarded him for the world to see on a cross. He put him forward and says, you're going to go. And Jesus said, I will step forward and I will gladly go take the hit to be a propitiation for anyone who looks to him by faith. And that word propitiation means a wrath bearer, to bear the wrath of God for sinners, for every sinner who looks to him, um, to take every bit of the punishment that the worst of sinners deserves if they look to him by faith. And, and so um, D.A. Carson says this. He says, to expiate, which is what, does anyone know? Those are two big words. I, I think I even used both of them in a row on Sunday yesterday in the sermon. But to expiate sin. What does to expiate sin mean? It means to remove yeah, to remove, to wipe away, to do away with, right? To expiate. So to, D.A. Carson says to expiate sin um, has, um, it has us as, as, as the object. You, you expiate, God expiated Cheryl's sin in Christ. He expiated Theo's sin. He expiated my sin. He, he wiped it away, right? He expiated my sin. But to propitiate has God uh, as the object. He was the one who was, um, who was not placated, but satisfied when Christ bore the wrath that was due to, that was due to us. God is the one in, in the propitiation of Jesus for us. He is the one that is satisfied and that now smiles because Christ took the frown of God. Christ was abandoned so that we could be running. Okay, so that was a bit of a discursus. But um, so Keller says that the first... The first big section in this, in this last part of Romans is this transfer where he tells us how to live as Christians. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and, and then the second and last section, really, of this last half of the book is in 12, chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, which says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So at that point, he says, okay, in light of... I've shown you the greatness of our salvation in Christ. And then I've shown you how you can walk that out day to day in the power of the Spirit, not in the flesh. But now um, I'm going to show you what difference it makes. And so he gives, it, 12 is like drinking from a fire hose, and we'll get there, of, God willing, of all sorts of, this is how this looks day to day life. This is how it plays out in all sorts of application, rich application. Okay, now let's, let's jump in uh, to the text. 
Okay, point one, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's jump into, I'm going to take this off because I'm getting hot, um, to that, sorry, to that verse, into that section. Sorry, don't look. Sorry, I just came to lie to you. Okay. There is, the, there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, point one. All right, so... Let me go ahead and read verses 1 and 2. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, what does Paul mean, the law of sin and death, in verse 2? I think law means more like a controlling principle. Okay. Rather than, rather than like strictly legal sense, like the Mosaic law. Okay, and so what does he mean, if you connect that to, of sin and death? And we talked about, he's, Paul has... The way of life, the controlling principle that is in the unregenerate, that, that reveals itself as sinful behavior and leads to death, maybe. Okay. Um, okay. Any, anybody else? So, so the law of sin versus the law of the spirit, the world, kind of the world system or the system of the flesh. Any, anybody else? The law of sin and death? Because of the cross, uh, we have eternal life. So in death, it's not really... Yep. Meaning he, he pays for all of our sins, the ones from before, today, and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So we are set free. Yep, that's true too. Thank God. Anybody else? Any other ideas? Any any thoughts on what does Paul mean by for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death? Maybe it's like the law of sin and death. You know, sin and death is just this sort of absolute kind of it's it's a law effectively to us without Christ. Right. And that like we we must sin and die without Christ. Right. Almost. Right. I, I got this kind of maybe, I don't, maybe that's not. Yeah, and sin and sin and Jesus. Excuse me, rather, Jesus stepped in and interrupted that you know, um, that unavoidable process that had set into the human race. Right, where there's there's this in Genesis five you just see and and Adam di- and, you know all these Adam died and then his son died and then his son died and then his and death reigns because of sin and Jesus steps in and he interrupts that. So the, yep. Any, any other ideas related to uh, the law in particular? The law that brings sin and death that Paul's talked about in the past? That's a possibility? Well, yeah, he says, like, he says in chapter 7 that when, when he really contemplated the law, specifically mm-hmm. the commandment against coveting, mm-hmm. and he became aware of its spiritual nature, he died. Right. Um, you know, and so... Uh, I think in that sense, like it, the law does the law is perfect and it's of God, right? But it also is it condemns. It doesn't just show us our sin, which it does. It also provokes our sin, right? So this could be one one meaning or the meaning of of the uh, this phrase as well uh, is that um, the law provokes our sin, sin and thus brings death, as Paul has said, because death is sin's consequence, right? Um, so verse three, um, and, and we will, 
at this point, I'm going to jump back to get to look at the, the, the first verse. Um, There's therefore now no condemnation, that glorious verse for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, verse three, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. Martin Lloyd-Jones spends his first sermon just, just completely on this phrase. Um, and I haven't even finished it. And I think he, he spends another sermon on these, on these couple verses, three and four as well. Um, that's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, pregnant phrase. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Because he goes on in verse three to talk about the law. So that's one of the reasons I think that when he says in verse two, for the law of sin and death, he's saying the law that provokes, provokes our sin, which leads to death, right? Um, Jesus has set us free from that by keeping it in our place. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. What a strong phrase. It really stopped me in my tracks when I read it. Few, it was so long ago because I prepared this lesson so long. I, can't even, I was sitting in gymnastics three weeks ago writing this, but I remember being there in the bleachers and just, wow. Um, let's, let's talk about that. Um, what is Paul saying here? Let me just open it up. In the light, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It almost seems heretical. He's, it, it, it's just a strong, strong, it's even stronger than John in his prologue when he, he starts out his gospel, and I think it's verse 14 where he says, um, Jesus came in the flesh. That's a strong, raw phrase right there. It's like basically his, the, the sort of way to understand that would be like skin and bones. Like, whoa, that's like, you're saying that God took on skin and has bone? Like he is, what, what, is, what is Paul doing here in the likeness of sinful flesh? Very strong phrase. Is he saying Jesus is sinful? No. Okay, and, and on the word level, how do we know that? Likeness. likeness, right? That's a key word. He doesn't say, he would have said in sinful flesh. He didn't say. So the word likeness is key. But then if he didn't want to say, if he didn't want to edge toward, say, tell us something about sin, sinful flesh, he would have just said, uh, he sent him in the likeness of flesh. Or he sent him in the flesh. He wouldn't have said in the likeness of flesh because he sent him in the actual flesh. Right? So not sinful, but flesh. Likeness is key. But wh- so why then not just in the flesh? What is Paul conveying with this phrase in the likeness of sinful flesh? Help me out here. Any ideas? It's okay. I mean, just if you have an idea, let us know. What's he getting at? He didn't just he doesn't just say in the flesh. He could have said in the flesh. He didn't say that. What's he getting at? So it's more than flesh. It's more than flesh, but not the same as sinful flesh. Let me quote from James Dunn, a Scotsman who came and lectured at New College in in Edinburgh at least once. Um, So James Dunn says this. He says, but likeness denotes both closeness of identity and a degree of distinctiveness. Sort of like Jordan was was saying. So he was treated by God. We're going to tease this out. As if he were sinful flesh. Okay? Let's tease this out. Um, now, now let, me, let me go back. Let me go back and just, and I have some marginalia here that I wrote down today. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, I just, I've listened to one half of his sermon on this, his first one out of the 75. Um, Jordan's listened to many more. Most, this is, this is one of the most descriptive phrases in the Bible regarding the humanity of Jesus. There are, there are a couple more in Hebrews, like chapters 4 
4.15, chapter 5, maybe chapter 7, that are equally descriptive. Um, so he, he really spends a lot of time talking about how Jesus was, why it's so important that he was born of a virgin. He was true flesh, truly human. Let's just spend a couple seconds on that. Why is it so important that Jesus was true flesh? Truly human, not appearing like a human. So many heresies are, oh, Jesus just appeared like a human. He actually didn't take on real humanity. Why is it so important that he became a real human, took on real flesh? And by the way, still is a real human and still has a real resurrected body and real flesh. Like you will see Jesus and hug Jesus and be able to put your fingers in. He will never stop being a man, a Jewish man with the nose of his mother, Mary, really flesh. Never. Because if he did, we would not be saved because he intercedes for us. He continues to represent us as, as a human, as a real human. He is our human representative and king. And we are seated with him. So our salvation hangs on the fact that he, re- he will always be a human from now on. He'll never stop being human. He'll never stop being flesh. Why is it so important? One thing you just hinted at it. Yep. He's our representative. Right. So if we're sinners and the penalty of sin is death, right? If he's going to be a proper, true substitution. A human has to die. A human has to die. So if he's not fully human, he is not a proper representative and substitute. That's right. A human. Sin for flesh and as a sin offering is sometimes how that. And for sin. Right. 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 Man was the one. Human was the one that had to die because of sin. That's a huge reason that Jesus became a true substitute representative by becoming truly, by taking on real flesh. Right. So that's one of the things Paul's doing here. So that's one of the reasons the virgin birth is so important. It's so, so important. Our salvation hangs on that fact that Jesus was actually born of a real woman, therefore fully and truly human. He took on, he became, God became something he was not. Wow, that, that teeters on the verge of, it sounds like it teeters on the verge of heresy, but it's not heresy, it's orthodoxy. And our salvation hangs on it. He, God became something he was not in becoming a true human, born of a virgin. But he remained God. Even though he let go, Philippians 2, 7, kenosis, he emptied himself of the privileges for a time of the Godhead, remaining God. He became what? Crucifiable. He became able to suffer. He took on the likeness of simple flesh. Not simple flesh and not just flesh. The likeness of simple flesh. Um, and he remained God with God as his father. And he, he was able as the God-man to bring us humans back to God. Um, and I just learned in, in um, Martin Lloyd Jones' lecture, he says Carl Bart And Carl Bart at the time he was lecturing, was still alive. And, was, and, and I'm just, I just listened to a long, I, don't, I haven't read much of Bart. I, I know a fair amount about Bart. I, I just listened last night. Um, to a long interview kind of lecture on, on Karl Barth. He was probably, maybe, he, he was the t- maybe the greatest theologian of the 20th century. Um, not greatest in my book as far as the most orthodox, the most biblical, certainly not, but uh, in theological circles, and, and especially with, with, um, with, with his ideas and with the, with his, he was, he, with the amount that he wrote. Um, but he actually believed that Jesus... Uh, took on sinful flesh. I did not realize that. Not just the likeness of sinful flesh, but sinful flesh. That's, that's, complete, that's hugely unorthodox. Um, so, so Martin Lloyd-Jones point, points that out. Um, fully human, uh, 
not except for sin, um, because because fully human, uh, but no sin. And so, um, so so what am I saying here? Fully, he's fully human. So what we what we aren't saying is Jesus was fully human except that he didn't have any sin. No, no, no. Sin lessens our humanity. It takes it excavates our humanity. It makes us, in a sense, certainly less than we were created to be. God, when He made us, did He make us sinful? No. No. Sin's an intruder. Sin, sin separates us from God, and it, and it we we are still made in God's image as sinners, but it it makes us less substantial and wraiths of the selves that we are supposed to be and created to be. And and so. Um, Jesus, there's a sense in which Jesus was the second or third, if we, can, if we count Adam and Eve, human to walk the planet because no sin and God made us without sin. And sin makes us less than human in a sense, even though we, re, we retain God's image and we are humans. And so, um, and so we're seeing when Jesus steps on the scene, the first human to walk the planet, the full, first full human and true human to walk the planet, really, uh, since Adam and Eve. No sin. Um, okay, so marginalia. Let me get back to this word, this this phrase, um, that lightness of sinful flesh. So, this high power Greek dictionary, uh, the word lightness here in the Greek, it's to a couple things. One, the state of having common experiences. Okay, the state of having common experiences, and two, the state of being similar in appearance, looking the same. So, if one, the state of having common experiences, the lightness of sinful flesh, Jesus experienced what sinful humans do, except for sinning. So he experienced what we all do, except for the sin part, right? That's one of the things that I think Paul's saying. He was tempted as we are, and even more. What does C.S. Lewis say about his temptation? Some people say, well, Jesus was perfect, so he, wasn't, he couldn't have been tempted like, like we are because we, we give in, and he never did. And so he couldn't have truly been tempted if he was without sin. Well, C.S. Lewis makes the point, actually, um, Whenever you give in is when, you, is when the temptation stops. It's like the pressure gets too much, and so you fold. Jesus was actually the, tr- the only true human, including Adam and Eve, because they folded, that has ever known the true power of temptation. And he uses the illustration of the oak tree. And he says, you know, a reed at the edge of a pond, when the wind blows, what does it do? It just bends over. It doesn't know the full power of the wind. But a hurricane gale, when an oak tree is being hit by it, it stands, it, especially the stronger the roots. And, and when, it, when, when the wind becomes stronger than the oak tree, the oak tree folds too. But Jesus never folded. He never gave in to the temptation of sin. He was actually, he became sin because God poured it out by his choice onto him. So he's the only one who ever has truly felt the full power of temptation. And that's part of what we see uh, in the desert when, when Satan tempts him and he withstands it. And that's part of what we see uh, in, at another crisis point in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he even begins to taste a little bit, I think, and have the curtain pull back on, oh, I'm going to be abandoned by my father for the first time in eternity, in the last time. I'm going to become the thing I've never tasted, sin itself. I'm going to have the wrath of God that everyone else deserves poured out on me. He begins to taste that, and in the face of that, he says, bring it. If it's the only way for humans to be saved, I, I submit to your will, Father. Um, so the state of having common experiences. So he was tempted as we are and more in pain and sorrow as we are book of Hebrews. Um, Paul was clear. Let me quote from uh, James Dunnigan. 
Paul was clearly trying to stress the extent of Christ's identity with sinful flesh. As a man knowing the same mortality, the same human appetites, he fully shared that weakness sin uses so effectively to destroy man. He was completely part of the old epoch of sin and death, but yet without sin. And then point two of the word likeness here, the state of being similar in appearance, looking the same. So point two, if Jesus looked like sinful, um, if two, then Jesus looked like sinful men do, right? He didn't have a halo over his head. He wasn't a Renaissance Jesus, you know, pasty with a, with a wispy beard and a halo. That's not what Jesus looked like. Um, you probably couldn't pick him out of a crowd until you heard him speak or he looked you in the eye. Um, he, did not wear a, he didn't wear white or have a silly blue sash, those silly 70s and 80s portraits of Jesus like Mr. America. No, he didn't. No. He just, he wore whatever a first century uh, Jewish man in, in uh, Palestine, right, in, in Israel would have, would have worn. Um, he didn't levitate. Okay, he pooped. You don't hear that very much, but he pooped because he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, fully man, right? He pooped. He had B.O. And it sounds crazy to say that, but if that scandalizes us, then it might, it might be because we've never really come to grips with his full and true humanity, right? It didn't denigrate him. He was glad to enter into all that we are as humans, but no sin, right? Because whatever is not assumed, whatever is not taken in or taken up is not healed. And Jesus assumed all of our humanity, but for our sin, to heal all of us completely. That's our, that's our hope. Um, so Tom Schreiner says, this is a really clarifying word, Tom Schreiner. He says, the word likeness was inserted by Paul, right? To stre- in the likeness of sinful flesh. The word likeness was inserted to stress the identity between Jesus and sinful flesh. Yet at the same time, it also suggests that he is unique. That is, his body was subject to the disease, death, and weakness of the old order. Yet the son himself was not sinful, nor did he ever sin. And I have to admit, I don't, understand how Jesus as a non, because death is a, is a consequence of sin, I don't understand as a non-sinner how Jesus could have died. I don't, I don't get that. Um, but it's a mystery. I mean, the incarnation's a mystery and you can only go, so, but we didn't get to see a natural death, did we? Because he, at the height of his, I mean, early 30s is kind of when a man is his strongest and there's a reason you're fully man. You're no longer a youth, but you haven't started to wither away. I mean, my, I'm, I, got, I looked at, I saw age spots on my, on my receding hairline in the mirror for the first time today. Jesus didn't have those yet. You know, I'm, I'm mid forties. He was early thirties, mid thirties at the latest. And he was at the height of his strength. He was a, you know, carpenter, probably a stonemason. He walked everywhere. He didn't drive around. He didn't type for eight hours a day. The dude was strong. And at the height of that, he stepped into a crucifixion, right? So um, either way, okay, verse three, verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now I'm looping back here to verse one. There's that word again, condemned. He condemned sin in the flesh. The same Greek word, as in verse 1, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those here in Christ Jesus. Why, why, does, why is Paul able to write that? There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because, verse 3, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned 
sin in the flesh. In other words, this is where it starts to, it started to get really hot for me. And this is, we're getting to that quote that I, that I put on your, on your notes, which we'll spend some time on. Um, in other words, we are not condemned if we are in Christ Jesus because why? Because in Christ Jesus, God condemned sin. Because Christ, that's right. In Christ Jesus, God condemned sin in the flesh. Christ was condemned in the place of every single person who looks to him as Lord and Savior. Condemnation has to happen. It will either happen to Christ for you or to you. And I'm saying that to every single human that has ever walked planet Earth. Condemnation because God is just. What is, what is the whole thesis of the book of Romans? The gospel shows us God's righteousness. He has to punish sin. Either it is punished in Christ for you as you look to him as your substitute, or it will be punished in and on you. There is no third way because God must punish sin because he's just and he hates it because he's so good. It's like if you saw a woman being raped or a child being abused, you would hate it, hopefully. The degree to which you did not hate that is the degree to which you are evil. Okay? A hatred of an evil thing is a sign of goodness. God is perfectly good. He must hate evil. It's a sign of his goodness. It has to be punished. In Christ it was for all who looked to him. You see? So, no condemnation for us because it was that all of sinful flesh who looked to Jesus Christ condemned in Christ, okay? So um, it either has to happen to Christ for you or to you. In other words, it has either taken place, the condemnation, or it will take place if you don't trust in Christ. The choice is yours. Why would you ever, ever choose to take a condemnation that Christ is willing to take for you? That is one of our messages to those outside of Christ. Please, please, please flee to Christ. He's the only safe place. He's the burn circle, as we talked about before. Right? Listen. So this is where we get to this quote. It's the only quote I've ever put on your notes. It may be the only quote. There's a reason I put it there. It's, it, it's, it, thun- I, I, it thunderstruck me. Okay? Um, I, I want to walk through it fairly slowly. I've italicized the bits that really, um, really nailed me. I was, I was absolutely thunderstruck by this. So... Um, let's read it together, okay? The logic of Paul's thought here, this is James Dunn. The logic of Paul's thought here is that sinful flesh could not be healed or redeemed, only destroyed. Okay, so it's, there's no lipstick on a pig. Okay, it, it has, sin can't be prettied up. It has to be done away with. And it's so, it's so woven itself into uh, the fibers of the old man, of all of us. We're born, not just people who sin, we are born sinners, okay, in the, in, the, in the first Adam. So the logic of Paul's thought here, he says, is that sinful flesh could not be healed or redeemed, only destroyed. This is what Paul's saying. He's teasing, he's theologizing, he's, he's excavating, he's ex- exegeting this, this verse. Man's bodiliness, his nature as an embodied soul, is another matter. 8, eight verse 23, it's worth reading right now. He's not talking about us with a body. He's not saying that has to be done away with. Why? How do we know that? What about, what, what about Jesus shows us that that doesn't, our bodies don't have to be done away with? His resurrection. His resurrection. He was resurrected bodily. We will receive new bodies. God doesn't hate the body. He made it. Listen to verse 23. And not only the, this creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, so, so that's what James Dunn says here. He says, man's bodiliness, his nature as an embodied soul is another matter. But for his flesh... 
The degree to which he is wholly one with this age, this broken, fallen, sinful age, this evil age, his weakness and merely human passions, there is no answer except death. That is presumably why, James goes on, God's response to the impotence of the law and the flesh, we're going back to the chapters we've already looked at, could not be a response simply in terms of forgiveness. Okay, this is huge, guys. This is huge. He couldn't just forgive, okay? Forgiveness dealt only with sinful acts, not with the sin itself. Repentance and the sacrificial system did not deal adequately with the root of the problem. The cancer of sin had taken such a firm root on the flesh, on humankind, that the surgery had to be radical. That means to the root. The flesh had to be destroyed. Humankind had to die. So in other words, we couldn't just repent, say sorry, and be forgiven. We had to, look, look at me real quick. We had to be destroyed. But for us not to be destroyed, we had to have a true representative who was. Yet without being destroyed, how can we do that? He had to be fully man and fully God. Okay, now let me go on. Let me go on with with James Dunn. The old age, so humankind had to die. The old age had to be wound up and a new beginning made. For Paul, the good news was that this was just what God had done in Christ. Christ's complete oneness with sinful flesh meant that his death effected the destruction of that sinful flesh. Okay? It, it, to the very end, Christ hung on the cross. He fully died. They stuck, a, they stuck a spear in his side. Water and blood came out separated. His heart had stopped. He was clinically dead. He was buried. Toast. Gone. Done. Okay, that old humanity, by the way, that old humanity was done away with and executed and dead because Christ took it upon himself. Okay, so let me, that, that was a parenthesis by me. Let me go back to done. Christ, compl- okay. Mm. Okay, Christ complete oneness with sinful flesh meant that his death effected, brought about, the destruction of that sinful flesh just as his resurrection meant a new beginning for humankind. What is one of the things I've always, I say when I tr- teach the resurrection or preach it, It wasn't just a guy rising from the dead. It was him bringing about an entirely new order. Just as he buried and crucified, not in that order, an old order on the cross. Now, let's go on. We're done. By identification with Christ in his death. By the way, which faith takes us to. Faith unites us to Christ. By identification with Christ in his death, individuals could now already share in something of his victory over sin and death. And even though they were still in the flesh, still sin's bond slave in their fleshliness, They could hope, I love this, in quiet confidence for that complete share in his resurrected life. Wow. Wow. Okay, so is that not astonishing? Christ killed and buried an entire age on the cross and with his his burial, with his death and burial. He killed and buried an entire age, the old age. A new age began with his resurrection from the old age. It's one of the many reasons he was raised on the first day of the week and that we worship on the first day of the week and that it, it began a completely new, not just week, but creation. It was the first day of an entirely new, a second creation, unstained by sin, death, evil, hell, Satan. And we're united to that. If you are united to that by, through faith, by the power of the Spirit of God and you're united to Jesus, you will be as he is. You will be, your future is secure. You will be without sin. You will be 
perfected. You will be glorified. You will be fully blissful and happy in him in a new creation. It's unavoidable. Do you see? You can't even. Paul says at the end of this chapter, you can't. He says nothing. I'm convinced nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. By the way, that includes you. You're not big enough to separate yourself from the salvation of God in Christ if you've been united to him by faith. You cannot get in the way of that. I can't get in the way of that. It's going to happen. Okay, so when he returns, so he set the clock ticking when he died and was buried. When he returns, he will finish the job and do away with all death forever. Those who are dead in sins and trespasses must be done away with because death is in them. See, what, remember what Dunn said? Death, ha- the, the flesh, the sinful flesh, it has, there's only one thing for it. There's not, you can't put lipstick on a pig. It has to be killed. It has to be done away with because death is in it, right? It permeates those of the old order. Therefore, it has to be crucified in Christ or it has to be done away with completely, right? Therefore, when death is done away with, those that are of the old order must also be done away with. It's like, and let, me, let me use an illustration, Whether it's good or bad, you'll have to be the judge. It's like a man with a 2,000-pound weight. Just imagine this with with me. It's like a man or a woman with a 2,000-pound weight tied around around your waist by a 100-foot rope. Or we could say a 1,000-foot rope. Okay, it's a 2,000-pound weight. The weight has been thrown over an infinitely high cliff. All right? It's just a matter of time before it tightens. And then you're toast. All right? It's just a matter of time before it tightens. At that point... Down you go, right? That is, what, that is what death invading us in the flesh as part of the old order. That's what is going to happen unless an intervention happens, right? So let me continue with the illustration. It's just a matter before it tightens and down you go. At that point, down you go. Christ comes along with a pair of sharp shears and he offers to cut the weight. Better, maybe more accurately, he offers to untie the rope from your waist and to tie it onto his own. Okay? If you say no to him, you have nowhere to go but where that 2,000-pound weight goes, but where death goes, where Jesus put death himself. He took it down to hell. He rose and left death dead in the ground. Um, and the illustration that comes to mind there for me is, of course, I just, maybe because I just watched it with my son, but we're reading through Lord of the Rings, and at the beginning of the second book of the three, The Two Towers, um, in the movie, um, Gandalf is fighting with the Balrog in the mines of Moria on that bridge, the bridge of Khazad-dum. And uh, the bridge breaks and down the Balrog goes and Gandalf turns his back and the Balrog's going down in the abyss and he whips him, he whips him with the fiery whip and pulls, pulls Gandalf down, 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 down at the abyss. And so that's a wonderful, one of many picture of Christ that, that Tolkien's giving us. And, the, and Gandalf, fly you fools, you know, and down he goes and he takes out his sword, Glandering, and he goes straight for the heart of the Balrog, and they fall down, down, down into the deeps, into the deeps, into the heart of, of hell, into the heart of the, the roots of the mountain. And he does battle with the Balrog and eventually wins and comes back as Gandalf the White. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture of something of what we're talking about here. Um, okay, let me read this very short one-line quote from Dunn, and then pause, and then ask if there are any questions, comments, and then I'll keep going, and we'll jump into... Um, the second, the second point, the second movement here. Um, let me read this by Dunn. James Dunn again. God did not redeem flesh. This, this is a killer quote. God did not redeem flesh by an act of incarnation. 
I didn't say the body, by the way. Dame Dunn didn't say the body. He said the flesh, the, the old order that's, that's completely permeated by sin and death. God did not redeem flesh by an act of incarnation. In other words, he didn't buy it back. He didn't purchase it. He destroyed flesh by an act of condemnation. So let me read that again. God did not redeem flesh by an act of incarnation. He destroyed flesh by an act of condemnation. He was our true representative, the representative of of the likeness of sinful flesh. He became sin on that cross. He paid the price. He died. He killed it in his death. The death of death and the death of Christ. It's a John Owen quote of it. It's a title of a John Owen sermon. The death of death and the death of Christ. He killed an old order. It wasn't just a guy dying. And when he rose, it wasn't just a man rising. It was a new age that he was bringing up, a new creation. And faith, what does faith do? Faith unites you to that death into the absolutely uh, unavoidable resurrection to a completely qualitatively new life that will be part of a new creation, sinless one day. You can't, you can't die with Christ and not arrive with him. It's impossible because you're united to the full Christ. All right. Now, let me open it up for questions, comments, and then one more comment, and then I'll move into the, the second point. Any comments? That's a lot. Big quote. A lot of heavy stuff. Good stuff. I hadn't thought about the Gandalf thing before. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Because that's just so clearly like... It's like... (laughs) Yeah, big time, man. What a great picture, huh? Yeah. And then, of course, you've got Aragorn walking through the paths of the dead before he gets to the the Battle of Minas Tirith, which is another Mm. sort of picture through Aragorn of, of a similar thing. Although I think he's getting a bit... Tolkien was a Catholic, so I think he's getting into purgatory there, but it's okay. We'll forgive him. Um, okay. Let me, let me read this, and then we'll pause. I, I, um, I'm contemplating. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We have 30 minutes left, and then we're done at nine sharp, so I may, I may want to open it up for questions. Well, I'm going to open it up for questions, and if we have questions and want to spend the rest of the time, great, and if not, we'll keep moving. Okay. Thus, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because he was condemned in their place, as we've said. Okay? And there is no double jeopardy with God. If Christ was condemned in your place, you will not be condemned. Do you you see that? Okay? Christ is risen, which means, among other things, that his payment for you to his Father in your place was accepted. His resurrection is empirical proof that his payment for you, if you look to him by faith, was accepted as complete payment. For every sin that you have committed, are committing, or will commit. Do you see? Now, the, again, the response to that is that if that truly, that transaction has truly happened by faith, you've truly trusted in Jesus Christ, the, 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 the response to that isn't, oh, I can go live however I want. No, no, you've been purchased at a price, right? But you're completely free. There, there, is, no, there is therefore zero condemnation for those who are in Christ. Actually, Keller has a, a really good thing to say here. Let me see if I marked it. Um, he says this, he says, the reason it is important to mention that, uh, the whole, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. The reason it is important to mention this, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is that many think that a Christian is only temporarily out. This is great because it's one of those things that I assume, but I've never quite read anybody that said that that's articulated it. Okay. Many think that a Christian is only temporarily out from under condemnation. Okay, this really resonates. 
Many want to limit the meaning of this phrase to our past or to our past and present. But Paul is saying categorically that condemnation no longer exists. It's not a category for the believer. Do you understand me? It doesn't exist because it's all Christ has completely taken it for every believer. That doesn't mean there's not sorrow over sin. There's more, there's true sorrow over sin. But condemnation for you, if you're in Christ by faith, is gone. Do you understand that? Do you understand the liberation that brings? But Rome doesn't believe that. Oh, right. You know? Right. I mean, it's... They don't. Right. And I have lots of Catholic friends. Yeah, and it's a wonderful truth to present and believe in and proclaim. And argue. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is all about assurance. Like I mean, this uses, uh, sorry to interrupt. No, no, not at all. He uses it's a, great. He talks about a metaphor. I don't think it's in reference to this verse, but I think it would apply. It's this image of a poker. And a poker, like an iron thing, you stick it in the furnace. And it, some people would say, like, you know, when you're, you put the poker in and it becomes malleable, and that's like an image of, the life and the spirit, but then you draw it out, it becomes hard again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he says, no, that's not how to think about this. Like, you're, you're, you're in. Yes. And Paul really makes that clear in verse 13. And a couple, there are a couple verses, and that's our, next, that's our next subsection, the life of the flesh versus the life of the spirit. And he shows how, and I think when I was reading it, I kind of paused and said, oh, uh, comment, do you want to know what makes a Christian? He, he's very clear about that in this next section. So, yes, that, that's a great – hang on he's to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay. So, your debt has been completely paid. You are free to go from the power of sin, Satan, death, and hell. Let me let – me, okay, let me, yeah, let me finish with Keller. He says, many want to limit the meaning of this phrase, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. They want to limit the meaning of this phrase to our past – okay, I already read this. Sorry. Uh, to our past and present, but Paul is saying categorically that condemnation no longer exists at all for a believer. It is not waiting in the wings to come back and cloud our future. And now let me, let me go on just briefly. Many believe that Christians who confess sin and then, okay, this is huge. I'm reading this because this hits home to a lot of theology that's propounded uh, in, in this part of the country, okay? Many believe that Christians who confess sin and then live a good life are forgiven and are, at that moment, not condemned. But they believe that should they sin, they're back under condemnation until they confess and repent again. Um, now, the reason I want to read that last part is because I've seen the effects of this kind of bad theology. And what it does is, and there's a sense in which, well, there, let, me, let me say it this way. There's a sense in which there's, there's a really anemic or thin category for sanctification theologically. Like they believe, okay, you're, many Christians believe, okay, I'm justified, I'm declared righteous when I, the minute I trust in Christ. I walk the aisle, I say, yes, okay, I'm, I'm washing the blood, I'm free, but then, but then I need to start behaving. And if I stop behaving, then maybe I, okay, I've lost something. I need to, you know, do Hail Marys or do what, or whatever. Um, and there's a category, the sanctification, the walking out by faith, the life of Christ, and that's what Paul gets into in this next section here, um, that that is just as much a piece of your salvation because you've been united to Jesus, who is your salvation. 
as you're being declared righteous instantaneously the minute you trust in him. Okay? You don't get one without the other. Sanctification, it works itself out over time, but it's not because of your labor and work or lack thereof. It's because of Jesus' work for you that's received with the open hand of faith. It's a gift. Just like you're being declared righteous. It's all of a piece. Do you see? So it's all a life of faith. And when you don't have that category, and when you don't really believe, man, there's no condemnation left for me. Then instead of that freedom, that, that like world-changing, you know, shackle-breaking freedom and gratitude that begin to fill you and, and drive you, Okay, not perfectly. We sin, we stumble, we mess up, but it really is a real thing. You're operating out of gratitude and not like, I need to behave or else I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be slapped on the wrist. Is that, um, is that you, the way that life begins to work for a Christian who doesn't believe that there, there's true no, truly no condemnation left and that sanctification is every bit as much purchased for me by Christ and worked out through faith is that it's like, I come to Christ, but then I need to behave. And then I'll go to heaven one day. So it's like, it's like Jesus and a life of faith and that gift and that no condemnation, it's almost like it doesn't have a place in your entire Christian life because it's, hey, I'm going to come to Christ at the beginning and then one day I'll be with him in heaven. But what about the entire part where I'm actually walking on planet earth and living? What about that bit? Well, that's just to roll up your sleeves and behave. So what it leads to is like, that's, it's a list of do's and don'ts. That's not the Christian life. It's a life of faith. Faith in what Christ has done, who he is, and, uh, and the spirit in you connecting you to Jesus Christ and giving you the capacity to obey him and to be filled with sorrow when you sin and to run back to him because guess what? He is your full savior, always and forever. No condemnation left. So I could talk and talk and talk, but that's, um, man, I hate that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, oh, oh, here, I have this. Okay, good. Let me just read this briefly from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, quoted by Keller. He says, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. Okay? And he's talking about verse 1, 8 verse 1. What happens if we forget that there is now no condemnation? Christians who don't understand no condemnation, Keller says, only obey out of fear and duty. Right? So, okay, I don't believe there's no condemnation left, so I need, I need to obey just so I'm not, I'm not condemned. Um, that is not nearly as powerful a motivation as love and gratitude. Um, now, let me back up. He's, Keller says, on the one hand, we feel more, if we don't believe this, we feel far more guilt, unworthiness, and pain than we should. From this may come drivenness from a need to prove ourselves, great sensitivity to criticism, defensiveness, a lack of confidence in relationships, a lack of confidence and joy in prayer and worship, and even addictive behavior, which can be a reaction to a deep sense of guilt and unworthiness. So I'm trying to fill that with something, right? And then he says, on the other hand, we will have far less motivation to live a holy life because we're trying to control things and we're not filled with this gratitude and this sense of freedom. Um, now, let me quote uh, briefly and then we'll move to the next section and maybe we'll pause questions and then we'll just take our time and if we have to get to this next week we will um martin lloyd jones jones uses this great illustration he says he says the difference between an unbeliever sinning so an unbeliever sinning right the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a christian sinning so you with me so there's an unbeliever that's sinning and there's a christian a true christian who's been united to christ by faith there's no combination for this person 
difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference, he says, between a man transgressing the laws of the state, so Texas, the USA, and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He is not breaking the law, the husband, right? He is not, this is a Christian. He is not breaking the law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. That is the difference. There's an infraction on one side that's going to be met by a penalty. There's condemnation. On the other side, you haven't broken a law. You've hurt a person you're in a relationship with. And that covenant that is supposed to be never broken, inviolable, is still intact. Which is one of the reasons that it hurts your wife so bad. But it's also one of the reasons that repair needs to be done and that your motivation is no longer like, I'm going to get slapped on the wrist. I've broken a law. It's I'm in covenant with this person and I've hurt her or I've hurt him. And so it's sorrow that leads you to repentance. Not, oh, there's, actually, there's no guilt left. It's all been paid for. Actually, there's no condemnation. It's all been paid for. And guess who paid for it? This Jesus that I've hurt. And so my motivation is, man, look how much he loves me. Look how free I am. I want to run back to him and say sorry. And I don't want anything to get between me and Jesus, right? So that's, that's, that's a bit of how it changes things. Any, okay. Any, any comments? Let's pause there. Any comments? And then we can begin to wind down. I, I've got more. Don't worry. The rest of, we've gotten through half of it already. The rest of it is, a, it's, it's pretty much flying. We'll get through part of it, probably first part of next week. Um, maybe we stop completely here. I want to give you guys time to breathe and then ask questions or make comments. And then we can keep moving if we need to, but we'll be done by nine chart. Anything else? Any comment? You haven't gotten to the part of the verse that I really was struck by. I mean, verse three? This is all great, yeah. But the, Tell me. Talk. The, um, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I don't know. Oh, verse four. Yeah, that's next. Yep. Oh, that is four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Talk to us. No, no, no. Talk to us about that. That's good. That's well, the I mean, next, the very next move. About, like, and yeah. so, yeah, I mean, uh, what we've talked about so far is um, profound and shows us what God did. But I really, mean, verse four is where Paul transitions right. into the, the life of faith filled with the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, it's, but what, what we've been saved from, but now what do we say for? But I just, That's I guess the reality that. of that, like seeing that, and I had not really dwelled on this on three and four before, um, that the rights requirement of law, I, I, I would have I readily said, you know, and, and acknowledged, like, did Jesus fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? We know that. Yes. Right? But the fact that it's fulfilled in, in us. In us. Yes. Like, it's hard for me to yeah to grasp that right. because I know my heart and I know yeah. all the ways that I break the law um, right every day yeah every hour yeah um, but but we begin but to been, actually be able to done. obey God from the heart but, and please Him but it's been done just as you say like yeah. justification is a forensic act and it's once and for all right and it makes a real difference in those who are declared righteous and forgiven, and we begin to walk, we begin to become more and more like Jesus in our desires, affections, But the thoughts. word fulfilled, yeah. right? And yep. the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled. In yeah. That. It's yeah. a mind blow. I, mean, I mean, it can, and I guess it could mean two different things. Like, it could be, it could speak to our, the fact that we're now 
because we have the spirit, are able to have life in the spirit and walk not according to the flesh, right? And thus begin, you know, in, in some measure, um, do that, right? But also, I guess it's also saying, like, by this, by Christ's atoning death and God's satisfaction in that, that requirement of the law, right, was fulfilled. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, like, I, think, I don't know. And in us, that's got to be touching on our being united to Christ. And right. he, he is in us and we in him and his but spirit. That's true. And like in the fact that like God is outside of time. So it's hard. Again, like with sanctification, it's difficult, right? Because we're, we're in time and we see our lives like in time and as a progression. But when God, just as he like condemned all of our sins past, our sins present, and our sins future in Christ at that moment in time, right? He also sees us not just as we were, not just as we are now, but also as we will be. Absolutely. Glorified. glorified. Yeah. So in God's eyes... It's kind of like true love sees... You love the person as they are, but you love them so much. You've heard this phrase almost cliche. You love them so much that you're not going to let them... You don't want them to stay where they are kind of thing. You see who they could be, the potential, and that doesn't lessen your love for them now. It actually means that your love is true. The perfect love of God is like that, right? He loves us right where we are, but he's not going to let us stay where we are, and he sees what we not could be, but will be. Guys, keep going. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, just that. It's, it's, it's trying to... And, like, the human mind can't... can't grasp that. Because right. we're bound by space and time. But that God would see that be done and fulfilled in us, yeah. even now, yeah. as we're walking the earth. Because it's as good as done. It's all right. I mean, it's Paul, it, at done. the end of this chapter, or in verse, what, 28 or whatever it is, he, he, he uses the past tense of glorified, right? So, We've been glorified. So it's, it's already not, happened. And so it's not just like... Been secured by Christ. It's not just that, um, you know, we think about, I'm being made, you know, I'm, I'm becoming sanctified now, right? But, also, but more than that... Like, I've been glorified. Yes. And perfected. It's done. It's a past tense verb for a reason. It's done. And so... Verse 30, by the way. That would, like, even more... That should, I think, at least for me, makes me so much more grateful. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, oh, no, I'm I'm just, like, a better person now. I'm, like, I'm holy. You know, I'm becoming more holy. It's, like, in some sense, like... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not articulating very well. And it pulls us, that reality, that reality that's already done, it pulls, it's, you know, think about the illustration of the weight in a positive sense. It pulls us forward. That reality pulls us into where we're headed uh, unavoidably because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of his person, because he's going, he always finishes what he starts, right? Yeah, it gives us the courage to keep, you know, to keep moving. Um, the because there's no question. I'm the designer too, because I want to be closer to him and I want to be right. more like him. Right. And so. Right. And to know that it could, that sin does, you know, we can never be separated from Christ, but it does affect the relationship. Just like in a, in a perfect marriage, like perfect meaning the covenant is kept and you, you're sinful, but you're honoring each other and working on it and loving each other. You, um, Things can come between. Th- things that you do to each other can really come between. They can cloud your relationship. It doesn't break the covenant, but um, and so that aspect of it begun, becomes a huge motivation for the Christian. And the aspect of like this put him on the cross. If I do this, 
it, it will be something that he paid for. Ooh, you know, the more you're, the more you're sanctified, the more like Jesus you become, the more that pains you. Even in the, especially in the teeth of wanting, like really wanting, there's a, there's a sin that's super appealing. God, I want to gossip right now. I want to just put this person, I want to say something that'll make me feel, that'll make me seem so much better than this person and just everybody will laugh or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Uh, um, or I want to grab onto this envy or I want to grab onto this bit of lust or anger or I want to win this argument in a simple way so bad. But then, so you can almost taste it, right? But then it's like, okay, in the teeth of that, in the face of that, I'm, looking at Christ, hanging on the cross for me, knowing how much he loved me. Boy, there's nothing more that fights sin better than that right there. Nothing. No fear of condemnation will fight sin as hard as that. I, I assure you. Gratitude, yeah. I've been really, those past few weeks, I've been saying every time I get a chance, you know, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Living a life of that more and more, and I think I've I've heard someone I really respect say that gratitude is the um, it's 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 basically it's the sign of heart health. How grateful are you is the sign of how healthy you are. How grateful are you? And and, and we could reverse that. I mean, dude, in the wilderness, why why did the earth open up? Why, why did that? Why did the Israelites die in the, during their forty years in the wilderness because of grumbling and complaining? We tell our kids that <laughs> when they grumble and complain, we're like, you know, the first generation died in the wilderness. The earth opened up and swallowed some of them. Um, you know, because we say that because we want to scare them. But also, like, hey, man, grumbling and complaining can seem so small, but it's cancerous, and it is, it is, it is temporary atheism. It is temporarily choosing to not believe that Christ hung on the cross for me, that I actually deserve what he took, right? Because when you get that into your head and it starts to sink into your heart, man, the, it just pushes out. No matter how bad your situation, and usually our situations aren't that bad. It's like, man, I didn't get the cereal I wanted, or whatever it is. Grumbling and complaining. It's like, wow, there's a gratitude that starts to fill. So, yes. Um, let's, anything else? Let's open, anything more? And I, um, I may take one step into just this, this is verse four, and then close. I'm definitely going to close on after that. Verse five and, and following. We'll go fast next week, but I'll probably try to, um, we may just get through those, but I'll, I'll probably try to get us into the next uh, section as well, through 20, verse 26. Or, um, anything else on that? I had a comment. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking yeah. Um, Let's just stop here. Whenever we were reading about um, how um, by, sending the first, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and person, it kind of made me think of an idea um, that I heard before, and I don't know, maybe it would help you guys reshare it, but you know, just how powerful of an idea that what that is, just to really think about it, because I mean, you know, sin is the opposite of God. It's, you know, disgusting, it's repulsive, and um, I mean, when I think of something that, you know, I see that in my sinful body, I think is disgusting and repulsive, I, you know, want to get as far away from it as I can, you know, I just, I, I hate it. I just am like, ew, gross, get this away. But it's like, what a picture of grace that, you know, God didn't think that of us and, mm. you know, not only embraced it, but embraced sinful flesh willingly. Amazing. Us. And, um, you know, just thinking of it like that and just that idea kind of, um, when I first heard that, it really illustrated this point of, like very powerfully to me mm. to think of like, wow, how do I react when I think of something that's 
you know, completely opposite of me in my head. Right. But something that's completely opposite of God, you know, in yeah. reality, and to such a degree, like, you know, like, supernatural degree. Right. We embrace that willingly. And, um, yeah, the, the, the condescension of God yeah. in, in the incarnation that Paul really captures in the letter to Philippians, in Philippians 2, right? Where he comes down from heaven and takes on the likeness. Paul doesn't use this phrase here, but the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin, right? Empties himself of the privilege. And how much that he condescends, but how much it ennobles us. But then he goes beyond that, right? Where he, he becomes... He... he, he he takes on the nature of a servant of a, or a slave and then becomes obedient to the point of death. And then Paul says, even death on a cross. And then he doesn't go down here, but we know. And then he continues to go down to hell itself, right? By, by taking on the, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's the gospel. Yeah. Like, can't even imagine, you know, just the contrast between those things. They're huge, but it's something that God did so willingly, you know, out of love and, what a picture of grace. The love, the humility, the way it ennobles us. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Thank it you for that. Thanks for sharing that. It's good. Um, okay, so the next, and, and we, I would love to hear a couple more comments, and then we'll make sure and close this by nine sharp. We have five minutes. but um, and, I'm, and I would like to sing out, so we need to remember that. And then if somebody or somebody's present at the table would like to try to, by memory, give us the first 17 verses, or maybe just the first three that we've gone over today, then by all means, um, no pressure. Um, but we're all, some of us are going to try to get there. So I, I, I do want to try to memorize Romans 8. I'm excited about that. But the next, the next bit that we're getting into is we sort of touched on um, already. I've titled it the life, the, I put life in scare quotes, the life of the flesh, versus the life of the spirit that's really the next section paul gets into and really what he's doing here he's talked about salvation he's talked about how christ has wrought it how he's how he's accomplished it for us okay and and we're united to him to his death and resurrection by faith um but then he moves into the life of the spirit so what okay so what does that mean for us like he's he's done this for us but it's not just he's taken that away he's taken death away he's taken condemnation away it's so that we can actually live we can actually live the lives that we are called to live. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, in the shadow lands. Yes, in the already not yet space where we've been saved and we have his spirit in us, but we've not, we've not yet reached glory. Though our glorification is as good as accomplished. It's been accomplished. It's as good as done. Um, but how do we then, are we just not condemned? No, no. Paul moves into, here's what life looks like. Here how it, here's how it's, We've been given a new spirit, a new heart, new affections. We actually want to please God. We're filled with gratitude. Our lives look different. Here's how. So he starts to talk about that in this next section, and that's what we'll get into next week. Um, and it's very, very helpful and very hopeful. Um, so let, let's, uh, if, if there aren't any, barring any other questions or comments, uh, and if there are, please let us know. Let's go ahead and sing. Amazing grace. But before we do, any, um, are there any last comments? Love to hear them. Questions? I'm going to say Romans. It reminds me of me being a Catholic. And as I always said before, it's the fear. You better be good. Yeah, right. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on. Christ was good in our place and he took our bad, you know, and that what a difference does that make? You know, it's good. Um, hmm. Amen. Yeah. It's almost too good to be true. Right. Yeah. I feel like that is one indication that you've really begun to grasp the gospel is that you feel, among other things, that way. It's really it's almost like it's too good to be true. Yeah. Yeah, if it's a ho-hum, you know you haven't gotten it. If it doesn't scandalize you, you know you haven't gotten it. Amen. Amen. Well, let's sing. I'm, I'm going to not record my voice or ours, but as much as...